Hello and welcome to episode 90 of Herpetological Highlights with your hosts, myself, Tom Major, and of course, my partner in crime, Ben Marshall. And in this episode, this 90th episode, well, boy, we're edging close to 100. That's going to be a big day. Oh, that'll be a big letdown. <laughs> um, in this 90th episode of the podcast, we're going to be talking about urban reptiles a little bit and uh, some of the challenges that urban reptiles might face. Obviously, we're we're concentrating on snakes because we were left to our own devices and snakes are our favourite. And yeah, no, no one was there to stop us. Exactly. And we're also going to talk a little bit about parasites, which is something which we seldom cover on the podcast. Parasites, however, are fascinating. They're fascinating because, um, well, the sheer variety that you get of parasites, the disgusting and surprising nature of their life histories, and also... I mean, there's just so many parasites, aren't there? There's more parasites than there are animals to be parasitized. There's parasites that are parasites on parasites. There's parasites that are parasites on the parasites of parasites. There's really no end in sight when you start mm-hmm. to talk about the humble parasite. And I think you've got to respect the tenacity of parasites too. I mean, they are often living in a actively hostile environment that is not in any way, you know, trying to help them along. No, the very environment in which they live is their enemy, as well as their food supply. And I just think a lot of these parasites, they have so little control over their own destinies. It's like, okay, you're a parasite, you're in the gut of another animal. You basically just, you've got to just live your life. Yeah, you've got to live your life according to the whims of that creature. Like if you're a snake parasite, you're going to get warm when the snake gets warm. You're going to be cold when the snake gets cold. You're just kind of going along with it. You know, that's what they've, that's, that's their fate. They've accepted it and they, they just tried to do the best. So let's get into the first paper. It's by Letouf, Von Takak, Bateman, Gagnon and Aubrecht, 2020, investigating the role of urbanization, wetlands and climatic conditions in nematode parasitism in a large Australian alapid snake published in, and I'm fairly confident this is the first time we've covered a paper from this journal, International Journal for Parasitology, parasites and wildlife yeah 2020 2020 yes yes 2020 so yeah pretty new pretty pretty much you know some of the most up-to-date knowledge on parasites you can obtain on the internet and uh, the general idea that was kind of the precursor for this paper was the urbanization so the building of structures for human dwellings the changes to the environment which take place as human beings occupy a place should equal less wildlife or at least fewer species with some animals able to adapt to the presence of humans and our associated buildings and all the other things that come along with us but many animals can't adapt to this and so they become locally extirpated so dead and gone in the local area we know that we know that generally speaking there's fewer species in urban areas but something which is kind of the next step on from that is are urban animals so animals living in these urban environments more or less healthy than their counterparts in so-called wilder environments yeah i think there's a there's like a slight subtlety to urban reducing species diversity stuff too because it can not just be reducing the numbers or or species of animals in places but also changing the composition so you're going to be swapping out potentially specialists uh like forest dwelling things for more generalist human cohabiting species i mean you know you think rats and stuff like that that are very good at making use of human resources as opposed to something that is going to be 
uh, really requiring a natural environment. That being said, there is this, there is a middle ground where you get a. I think there's been a few few papers that have shown either during the transition or in areas that aren't like hyper urbanized, you do actually an increase in biodiversity where there's adequate resources for some of the specialists. You know, there's still patches for them, but you've also got the human sort of communal species slipping in there too. So it's not just a straight. You know, like all this stuff, it's never just as simple as more urban makes things less diverse. Is it can have a sort of fluctuating uh, relationship as well? Yeah, certainly, it's Which never makes straight. It interesting. It's never completely yeah. straightforward. Um, but one of the, the ways in which you can examine the health of urban species is to look at the prevalence of parasites within those creatures. So. Many parasites, they don't actually want to kill their hosts. They want their hosts to stay alive because they need them to live. Literally, they are their habitat. But they can still have negative effects, which over the long term might impact a population's ability to thrive. Especially especially if you're talking about a, a, a new environment, a new setup, i.e. something like urbanisation, where things might not be quite stabilised. Mm -hmm. where you've got some sort of novel uh, change or novel impact on that species and then the sort of nematode or parasitic load is another pressure which you know straw that broke the camel's back sort of stuff absolutely yeah one thing that you should think about as well though is that it can also work the other way so if you have an environment which has been heavily modified a lot of these parasites have really complicated life histories so you might have a parasite which starts off as an egg in some leaf litter gets eaten Mm -hmm. by a slug then gets eaten by a frog. Then gets, you know, it spends a life stage as a, inside the frog where it might infect the lungs or something along those lines. Then that frog's eaten by a snake and then it changes again and does something different in the snake. So what you have to have in order for this parasite to complete its life cycle is availability of all of those things. So mm-hmm. a habitat without yeah. slugs, frogs and snakes can't host particular parasites. So it could be that simplification of the environment because of urbanization takes away one of these steps to the parasites so their prevalence yeah, could go break down that cycle yeah. yeah yeah so it could go either way really it could also like you say the additional stress of the environment which is urban could lead to a kind of um, deterioration in an animal's ability to fend off parasites and therefore increasing the parasite burden and that was one of the kind of underlining theories behind this paper was okay We've got some snakes. In this case, we are in South... <laughs> this is confusing. We're in Southwest Western Australia. It's actually maybe not that confusing. But we're in Western Australia in the Southwest part. And we're talking about uh, wetlands and we're talking about tiger snakes, which are Natechis scutatus. And we're talking about nematode worms. So tiger snakes are large venomous elapids. They're named because of their stripiness, which resembles a tiger if you've only seen one other stripy animal in your life and so they were called tiger snakes (laughs) and uh yeah they are sort of mostly dark in color with kind of lighter bar stripes on their flanks one thing i noticed about this paper which uh you know not a dramatic complaint but something which could have benefited it was there was no pictures of tiger snakes or nematode worms yes um sometimes you are limited by the number of figures you're allowed to put in a paper and sometimes, if you were to put in pictures of your cute little study species, uh, people ask you to take them out multiple times at review. You have to resist it multiple times. 
<laughs> well, I'm livid um, about it. I think there should be a picture in here of both, and preferably um, an actual one of the nematodes that they studied in this would have been really cool. Instead, I had to go digging because I, I was not going to be satisfied with not knowing what these freaky little worms looked like. So the species of nematode worm, I don't know whether to go nematode or nematode, nematode. Um, the species is Ophidoscaris pyrus. And I found a 1988 paper by somebody called Sprint, which had pictures of these and a bunch of other uh, nematode worms in them. And they're pretty monstrous up close. When you get a microscope out and look at one of these bad boys, it's pretty shocking the uh, the way that they are carrying on in terms of their morphology. They're small, right? They're only between 30 and 200 uh, millimeters long. So up to two centimeters. Females are larger than the males in these nematode worms. Uh, I swapped again back to nematode. The head is only one fifth of a millimeter wide, but their mouths, they don't have a mouth that you would sort of, if you were, to, if you were asked to envisage your mouth, it's two parts, right? Opening and closing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 These have three parts. Okay. So. Of course they do. You know, it's kind of like, uh, like the Arbiter from Halo, perhaps with the two that's, bottom that's, bits. That's four parts. But yeah, did they have? Did they have? I feel like they had two up top and two. Mm, two bad analogy in that case. Mm-hmm. And but I imagine suppose they're top top bit, so maybe even five if you if you're splitting hairs. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that was a poor example. But they basically have these three mouth parts. They look like um, we've talked about that film Holes before. They look a bit like those things from Under the Sand. Wait, no, holes? holes was the lizards. Tremors. Tremors. Surely. We had this conversation last time. <laughs> tremors. Yeah. Oh, tremors. Now that would be a crossover. Holes, holes cross tremors. Holes was the one where even Stevens was in the holes and there was bearded yes. dragons painted to look venomous. Yeah. Absolutely. Tremors is the one with the gigantic under the surface worm. They kind of yeah. look like the worm from Tremors. Graboids. Um, the front end is thicker than the back end. And what they tend to be found doing, if you if you dissect a, a tiger snake and you're looking for these um, nematodes, what you tend to find them doing is that their body is poked through the wall of the stomach and back out again. So like the middle loop of their body goes through the stomach. The front and back end are protruding out of the stomach and the middle of the body is embedded in the mucous membrane of the stomach. So um, you're talking like, like they're, they're sort of sewn in like a stitch? Yes, essentially, yeah. And I think that's how they I think that's how they manage to stay implanted in the snake. They're just like locked in by this like mm-hmm. essentially stitch. Yeah. And yeah. what they do is they poke their heads into the stomach and they eat the ingester, which is the partially digested food that the animal itself is eating. So that's how they survive. They're not eating the uh, snake itself. They're not feeding on the snake's meats or organs. They're actually eating the semi-digested food that the snake has eaten. So they're essentially an unwanted weight loss regimen for wildlife. And the authors of this paper noticed that when they found wild tiger snakes in poor body condition, they frequently found a high intensity of these Ophidoscaris pyrus um, nematodes. Uh, what are we talking about when we say high frequency? We're talking like 70 to 150 of these little guys, right? Yeah, which that's quite a lot. If you imagine each of these worms is up to two centimeters long, having 150 of those in your stomach when you're a snake that's only a meter long, it's a pretty intense infestation of parasites. Yeah, yeah. And you can imagine the sort of impact that would have on the surface area of your stomach too. Like there's a, there's a lot of lot of surface area just that's going to be worm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, when you see pictures of these stomachs infected with these worms, it's it just looks like a tangle of black strings sort of poking in and out of the stomach. It's pretty disgusting. 
I talked a little bit earlier on about the possible life cycle of some of these parasites. The, the specific life, life cycle of the species we're discussing here isn't actually understood. They don't know the larval form. They don't know where it, where it starts off. But there's other similar species which lay eggs in the digestive tract of snakes, which are then pooed out. They go on to infect new frogs, uh, either by being consumed directly by the frogs themselves or by being eaten by invertebrates, which are then eaten by frogs. So it's kind of broadly similar possibly to the um, life cycle I described earlier. They're not 100% certain. But amphibians and lizards generally are thought to act as this intermediate host. Um, and uh, there was a paper which suggested that in wet areas, amphibians are hosts, and uh, in dry areas, reptiles are hosts. And in the paper I was talking about earlier, back from 1988, there was a picture of a lizard which had been infected by uh, a very similar parasite to this. And you can see it. Uh, if you look at the lizard, there's like horrible bulges around its gut, and you can see there's a bad infestation of parasites that are actually visible on the surface. And presumably... Oof. If you had a bad infestation like that as a lizard or a frog, it might mean that you're a little bit less capable of getting away. So perhaps it also increases their chances of being predated by the snakes, which the parasites mm -hmm. then happily live inside. And yeah, in this paper, they were looking at museum specimens. And it's a question that we actually often get asked is like, okay, why are people taking individuals of animals out of the wild and putting them in preservative in museums? Well, this is why, because... Every now and again, someone will come along and they'll need some snakes to dissect for a study such as this. They want to find out parasite prevalence in relation to different environments and different um, urban centers. And uh, yeah, it's, it's useful to have those animals in the preservative. And so, yeah, they actually tracked down 91 tiger snakes for this study to have a look at the guts of. Yeah, yeah, 91 across this, this southwest, southwest Western Australia. Uh, area so it's sort of covering areas around perth albany that sort of place they had a variety from deeper near the sort of central urbanized areas spreading all the way out to some pretty rural areas and uh yeah just sort of get an idea of how this nematode load how 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 many nematodes were were found in these snakes related to the distance to urban areas but also in relation to some climatic factors and their proximity to wetlands so you know we're looking at temperature sort of stuff we're looking at um, rainfall and sort of metrics for uh, environmental moistness i guess or wetness yeah environmental uh, what else moistness. did they have <laughs> Well, yeah, no, you're right. Like the key thing is like, why are these worms here? And what controls the amount of worms in the snakes? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the, the nematodes are pretty widespread, right? In 91 snakes, 74% of the adults had nematode worms with the average number of worms per infected snake being 31 nematodes. So basically, if they were infected, they tended to have quite a few. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 31 is like no joke. Yeah. It's not like having one or two. But yeah, as yeah. you said, it went up to 150 in the worst cases. And so, yeah, they were able to unpick somewhat of a relation here. Essentially, the probability of tiger snakes being infected with nematode worms increases as they get closer to wetland sites. Yeah. So we didn't, we, they didn't seem to find a particularly, well, any, they don't report any, any link between nematode load and the urban sites which is really what the what the target was to see that that relationship but it didn't seem to be particularly apparent but the wetlands 
wetlands, uh, rainfall, and wetness all seem to play a role. But wetlands being the chief driver of, yeah, probability of infection. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing they wanted to look at, wasn't it, was um, has the number of snakes being infected changed over the course of the last hundred years, which is obviously the advantage of museum specimens. They've got samples varying in age, but they didn't see a change over time. But they did also say that they didn't necessarily have a good sample size to do this. So like, for example, they only, they only had like three between 1940 and 1959, um, stuff like that. So it's difficult to say for sure. Well, and you've probably, it, it gets this additional problem of, okay, how were they sampled in different periods are the sampling the way you're finding these snakes picking up did you just get a bunch of wetland snakes from one period of time and then more urban snakes from another period of time yeah can, yeah that's that's going to cause cause problems and throw stuff off um so nothing in terms of over time but some nice spatial patterns at least yes because I, me- I mentioned the wetlands thing you mentioned the urban thing and the lack of a correlation there yep but the weird, the two weird ones are the more rainfall, the fewer, the 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 lower the risk of nematode infection, which is kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? Yeah. Like, so it's increasing with wetlands, but decreasing with rainfall. But why? But why? But why? Well, you've got this setup with wetlands. You were talking about the life cycle of these these parasites that seem to be connected to frogs. Yeah. So is it the case that the frogs and uh, sort of other life stages of this nematode are best suited to sort of permanent wetlands and aren't actually very uh, adapted to making use of fluctuating moistures in the form of rain or this, this wetness index? They need that permanent water body. They need those permanent hosts in terms of frogs far more than anything to do with uh, rainfall and wetness. Yeah, I'll be honest, I found that element of it a bit confusing, to be honest. I didn't really feel like they got to the bottom of it. Because wasn't there some suggestion that um, urban, like a lot of these wetlands, especially near urban areas, because of like storm drains and things like that, they go from being more sort of sometimes wet, sometimes dry areas to being permanently wet areas. I think it's also a situation where you've got, if you've got wetlands in dry areas, you've got this almost hyper-concentrated scenario of uh, parasitism and, and frog abundance in very tight areas. So snakes very close to those areas are subject to this sort of intensified ah, yeah, that makes hot sense. spot of, of nematodes and things. Hmm. Um but no, you're right. There, there is this odd interplay between where you would expect wetlands to be and precipitation. Yeah, that would be something that that you'd think was related. Um, and I think it's a little bit frustrating with this paper that they don't actually report the um, the you know they don't report all the models they ran, just the top uh, top however many. Um, unless they were hiding away in supplementary material, but I can't say I saw anything mentioning supplementary material in this. So you don't know the relationship between the urban stuff that they ran and 
uh, nematodes, which might be, yeah, I can't find any supplementary material, which might also help explain this a little bit, because just because it's not in the top model doesn't mean that that's not actually what's driving it. This mm. is just what's explaining the variance, um, or the you know the variation in nematode infection rates. So there's almost certainly more to this. I certainly get why you're sort of having a tough time passing the disconnect between wetness and nematodes or rainfall and nematodes and then this positive association with wetlands and nematodes. Um, hmm. Yeah, thinking about it, now you've said that the um, the likelihood that they're inf- infected with nematodes is higher when you've got less rain. Yep. Yeah, I mean, that does sound sort of like these things are being concentrated in smaller areas because well, there's only water the somewhere. other really important thing is their distance to wetland result. So you're looking at figure uh, figure three. Yeah. And actually, the whole of, whole of figure three, you've got those wonderful... Well, not particularly wonderful, but you've got wonderfully illustrated confidence uh, intervals on these lines. And they are... Very, very wide. Mm. They are so wide that you could actually flip the relationship inside those 95 intervals. So imagine if the actual true effect was something where you'd have, I don't know, a 50-50 chance. Well, let's say a 65% chance of being infected with a nematode in a wetland. And that could actually increase to over 75% eight kilometers away from a wetland in their model. There is still a possibility that that is the relationship out there in the wild. Mm. Their model suggests that it's something like when you're in a wetland, you've got a 75% chance of a tiger snake having nematodes, and that drops down to like uh, like 35% chance eight kilometers away from a wetland. That's That's the best estimate from their model, but there is enough uncertainty in those results, that the relationship could be flipped. Yeah. And that is... You know, that's it. it's less pronounced for the uh, precipitation and the wetness ones. It doesn't look like it could be flipped, but it certainly looks like it could be almost nullified. Mm. And that's just, you know, that's from the, the data they've used. It's okay. That, you know, they, they say it quite clearly. It's only 91 it's quite a limited sample for, for attempting this, but there's some interesting things being pulled out. Fully agree, super interesting stuff being pulled out, but there is still enough uncertainty that some of these relationships could be a lot softer mm. than uh, than their top models yeah, suggesting. Yeah, I, I think to sort of summarise what they've found, and as you say, there is a chance that this could go the other way, um, but there always is. I mean, this is, you know, there's, it, it's only one study, one little subsample of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. We can only say, we can only really speak to the uh, prevalence of nematodes in 91 snakes in southwest Western Australia. But they generally had a higher probability of infection close to wetlands, which does suggest this higher yes. frequency of exposure to frogs as an infected food source. Um, there's a, there's also some other information which kind of supports this. So yeah. the diet and parasite infection of other snakes. Um, so this same nematode has been detected in Western brown snakes and mulga snakes and bardics, all other um, elapids from Australia. 
And uh, all these species are known to predate on frogs, which is the kind of common denominator among them all, suggesting that this parasite is coming from frogs. Plus, on Karnak Island, remember Karnak Island, that place with all the snakes with no eyes because the birds keep pecking them out? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the tiger snakes there. They actually do not have nematode worms at all, and they never eat frogs. So that's another yeah. sort of bit of supporting information. And these guys, they did have some dietary information from these 91 snakes. 86.8% of the dietary uh, items that they recovered from these snakes, frogs. Frogs. So, yeah. So there you go. If you don't want to get infected with an nematode worm, don't eat don't frogs. Don't eat a frog. <laughs> yeah, and definitely don't eat a slug. I found out recently you can get a brain parasite from a slug that can basically make you paralyzed. Oh, yeah. Shocking. Yeah, no, uh, slugs and snails and stuff. Never, nope, nope. Have All sorts snails. of incredible parasites in there. Yeah. Grim. Well, there you go. So we're talking about unexpectedly, it wasn't more likely that snakes would have parasites if they were closer to urban centers. In fact, it I seems would, to be... I don't think you can <clears> say <throat> that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be pedantic and say you can't say that because we don't see the results from that model in this paper. It could be that... That is the case. It's just the wetness does a better job of, of explaining it. So you think it could be that urban areas do have a higher incidence of of snakes with parasites, but they're also wetter and therefore wetter has taken over? Well. Or just the fact that they're eliminated from the model because the model was like, oh, wetness. <sighs> right. Well, exactly. That's, that's precisely my point is you don't actually know which one out of those two it could be. Mm, um yeah. i do, do they do they detail how they how the wetlands and the urban areas relate how do you mean like whether or not those things are mutually exclusive or not right yeah mm. yeah because they've got the urban areas mapped out quite nicely yeah, I don't think they really... I think they treated them separately because you've just got distance to urban centre as one of their metrics. And then... Okay. Is it, is it, is it distance to wetland? Distance or, to wetland, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think they... Uh, I, I don't think they actually considered those things in any way as the same entity. And I think from reading this paper, a lot... The vast majority of their snakes were collected like pre-1990. Yeah. And so... That was kind of prior to a lot of the sort of changes going on, particularly around Perth, uh, to wetlands and stuff. So I think they were just kind of like, look, these are where the wetlands are. These are where the urban areas are. They didn't necessarily go to any great lengths to relate those two to each other. Yeah, because I I do think there's a little bit more potential here. There's still still some more to be dug out because I think you've got the wetland-urban interplay thing, but also... Mm. The way they dealt with, you know, you, you just mentioned that you've got samples from prior to a large urban expansion. So it's a little bit tricky to, to work with that because ur- where urban is changes in relation to each sample, which is a nightmare to deal with. But instead of treating it like distance to urban centre, I think there's probably some scope to certainly for have, the modern Have modern urban things. wetlands and non-urban wetlands. Is that what you're thinking? No, no, I was thinking of, of changing urban to a metric based on like road density or something like that. Not distance to road because you're going to get more snakes near roads because of how people sample opportunistically and stuff. But some other metric which describes urbanness 
Because, I mean, a city doesn't expand in a circular fashion, does it? Especially ones on the coast and things. They, they... <laughs> no, unless it's Atlantis. <laughs> well, that just goes straight to the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> but they're non... There's a non-uniformity about the way they expand. And so there might be some interesting urban metrics for measuring that which might be more accurate than just a straight to urban center thing mm, yeah i agree um, yeah that's not necessarily the most informative thing is it no but it that they had a really tricky situation where they were working with samples taken from 1990 so they didn't know what it unless like. you had you know road if you had roadmaps from 1990 and all the way through to to now something like road density would be a nice uh, a nice proxy for it perhaps but I would be surprised if they did <laughs> for an area that large. Yeah. And even then, you know, roads roads and urban isn't a perfect match, but it's road density could I don't know. I don't know. I'm mm. just I'm just thinking that it's not it's not enough to close the book on the impacts of the urban stuff. So what we're working with here is an understanding that something to do with wetlands is making these snakes have more parasites. It's, yeah, I mean, the, the takeaway for me, I think, is wetlands are obviously an important aspect with nematode stuff. It's not enough to say that urban isn't, but if you want to be working out with snakes and nematodes, you're going to have to be taking into account something to do with wetlands and this connect, potential connection to frogs. Mm. That seems to tally up real nice. I'll tell you what. I always get parasites when I go to wetlands, but not when I'm in the big city. You ever picked up a yeah. mite in London? I haven't. No. Whereas, no, catch right. me in the riparian zone of any yep. river, you know, particularly here in Wales. Bowling around in the reed beds. Yeah. If, you, if you're gambling around in the riparian zone, you're going to come back with some ticks between your toes, mate. Yeah. Yeah. And okay, they're different from nematodes, but, uh, you know, I think it's still a pretty conclusive finding. <laughs> no, I, I, I. It sounds like I'm, I'm being t kind of down on this paper, which I'm not. No, it doesn't sound like that at all. It's no, no. a really good job. Yeah, it's more just that little that little urban aspect. I think there's probably still some more digging to be done there. Yeah, well, hopefully there will be more papers like this that we can read. Um, perhaps with some findings about urbanization and its impacts on reptile health beyond the obvious body condition. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, from sort of that inconclusive finding about reptiles and urban areas to a much more conclusive finding, I would argue, to do with reptiles and urban areas. Should we move on to the second paper? Yeah. Okay, so this one is by Burry and Sajak. 2020, the loss of sexual size dimorphism in urban populations of a widespread reptile. It's the European grass snake Natrix Natrix, published in Current Zoology. So yeah, we're talking about the grass snake Natrix Natrix, close relative of one of our UK species, once thought to be one of our UK species until some clever geneticists split them up and confused the UK press. Um, the barred grass snake is one we have here, Natrix helvetica. Um, and these Natrix Natrix, the actual... OG grass snakes that we're talking about. Olive green with sparse black markings, vivid yellow neck collar as juveniles. And they're another snake which absolutely love to eat amphibians. 
They'll also happily tuck into fish, but they are famous for eating frogs. And female grass snakes are generally larger than males. I don't know about you, Ben, but I've seen a whopping grass snake um, in Maya's parents' garden. They have a compost heap, which is like huge. Mm -hmm, And uh, mm -hmm. all the grass clippings from the big lawn go onto this compost heap along with all the food scraps. Which is, of course, why they're called grass snakes. Quite possibly, quite possibly. Grass clippings. But also they are thin and green like grass. Yep, yep. You're making good points. These are all good points. Uh, and yeah, I once saw a whopping female grass snake on that. She was huge. She was like four feet long. And she hissed at me from like 10 feet away. I've never known a snake be so keen to hiss. I was just like, chill out. I'm not even close to you. Like, I hadn't even seen you. You could have just stayed quiet and we could have had absolutely no interaction whatsoever. But you had to hiss. Anyway, um, I later discovered... Because I was putting some extra grass clippings, right? You imagine there's like these two big wooden compost heaps and on the right of the compost heaps is where the grass is stored. The grass is used as like a top layer for the compost heap, right? It's Mm -hmm. all very well thought out. It's like elite professional composting. And uh, one day I was like using a fork to pick up the grass to put on top of the compost heap. And I accidentally rolled over and uncovered a clutch of about 20 grass snake eggs. And I was just like, oh God, I've destroyed it. What have I done? So I reburied them. Um, I reburied like the vast majority of them in uh, the compost heap. I took a few inside. I thought I'll give a go hatching you guys. And three of them actually hatched. It was awesome. And they then put them back in their little compost heap. I don't know what became of the ones I left in there. I was a bit worried that I wasn't going to put them back in the right place because like where they had initially been was no longer a thing. So I was like, well, I'll just kind of approximate, which is kind of why I decided to take some in because I was like, well, I can just Google what temperature. You know, diversify your portfolio. Yeah, I diversified Mm -hmm. my portfolio. Exactly. Um, They didn't all hatch. I think some of them had been turned over. So I probably suffocated a bunch of the babies, which absolutely sucked. But the little babies that did come out were awesome and I let them all go and they looked fantastic. So I'm hoping that like, yeah, they'll be next generation of grass snakes. Um, That's just an aside about grass snakes with absolutely no relevance whatsoever, except for the fact to say that, yes, grass snake females are generally bigger. By far the biggest one I've ever seen was that one. I also saw another whopping female grass snake. I mean, we're talking about a slightly different species, Nature Helvetica, but I saw another whopper at my field site in Wales where I look for Escalapian snakes. It was actually the first big snake I saw. I I was hoping it was an Escalapian snake, but... (laughs) Just to trick you, just to mess with you. Literally like the the biggest grass snake ever. Yeah, the one time I've seen a snake that's not an Escalapian snake at my field site, and it was the first adult snake I saw. It's just this whopper of a female grass snake. And so... That basically is just, yeah, the female grass snakes generally, they're considered to be bigger than the males. It's, it's, it's an accepted rule. It's called female biased sexual size dimorphism, if you want to get technical. And the authors of this paper, who were studying a population of grass snakes in Poland, actually, um, near Krakow, they noticed that in urban areas, it seemed as though the female grass snakes didn't actually look that much bigger than the male grass snakes which is highly suspicious yeah yeah i mean why are why are females bigger it's basically a a fecundity thing right bigger female more eggs if you've got more eggs you've got a greater chance of of more of your offspring surviving and then you imagine that reinforcing the sort of natural selection thing of okay you've got a higher likelihood of those genes going forward higher likelihood of that increased fecundity gene going forward and that being reinforced as it goes. Mm, and it's kind of on the flip side to the male-male combat thing, which seems to produce males which are bigger. So Right, or more likely, 
they're both occurring, right? Because the, the female fecundity thing, that's not going to be relaxed in a species with male-male combat. It's just male-male combat is a stronger selection. You know, it, it, it's the relative strength, I suppose, would just outpace that one. Mm, yeah. I don't think grass snakes do combat, though. I've certainly never seen any videos of that or heard anyone mention it. I feel like that would have come up because it's mm. very famous that adders do it. Um, no, it's more just making the point that just because you have male-male combat doesn't mean that the females aren't also under a selective pressure. Oh, yeah. And like, like you say, selective pressure. sometimes, yeah, there are species which the males are smaller and they battle. Adders are an example. So, yeah, that's probably an example where the fecundity mm-hmm. thing's a bigger selective pressure than the size thing. Um, so, yeah. And they conducted this study on four populations of grass snakes in southern Poland. Um, two were what they term urban populations. So one is completely encircled by roads and buildings. Sort of, I imagine it to be a little wetland complex with, yeah, urban areas all around. The second urban one was around 70% uh, surrounded by wetland. And then they had uh, suburban. Urban. Sorry? You said surrounded by oh, wetlands. Surrounded by again. urban, right? Wetlands surrounded yeah. by Sorry, urban. Yeah. surrounded by urban stuff and then they had a suburban population which was sort of semi wild semi urban but mostly wild and then they had one which was just nice and wild no urbanization around and about and yeah yeah, they they like i said they suggested that maybe there was um evidence that the females weren't much bigger than the males so they decided to capture a bunch of snakes from these four populations And sure enough, the two urban sites had no evidence of dimorphism. The males and females were statistically of an identical size. In the urban areas, the females seem to be no longer bigger than the males. The males and females are functionally the same size. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was predicted that just everything would get smaller, right? That's right, yeah. But there was this this scenario where the males were actually comparatively sized to uh, to the rural males. Um, and it was this sort of compression of snake size. Yeah. And what they were thinking was, okay, if there's a reduction in these large females, right? If it's because the largest females are being persecuted, because apparently in Poland, people do kill snakes sometimes. Um, I mean, as is the case here, I think not commonly. Well, also, you've also got this this scenario where just because they're bigger, they're actually more at risk of accidental deaths too. You know, a longer snakes take a longer time to cross the road sort of thing. They're a bigger target to get clipped by stuff. True. Yeah. But what they were thinking was, if it was because of persecution, you'd notice a skewed sex ratio. So ordinarily, grass snakes, pretty much one male to one female in a population. So if you get 20 males, you've got 20 females, healthy population. What they were thinking was, okay, if someone's coming along and killing all the biggest ones because they're easier to spot, you'd expect to see a reduction in the amount of females compared to males. So instead of one to one, you might find there's two two males to every one female, for example, in an extreme case. But they didn't see that. The urban areas and the suburban and the wild or non-urban populations, all had equal numbers of males and females. So that kind of rules out the persecution theory. What it doesn't rule out, though, is the idea that these animals are shrinking because of a lack of food or a reduction in the amount of food available. So the theory that they're working on is that the females are not growing to such large sizes because there's less of a food resource in these urban areas and that is basically curtailing their growth or perhaps the females have a mechanism by which when their bodies detect that they're eating less frequently they slow down the growth so they don't get to a size which they can't maintain 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the most sensible explanation is some sort of interaction with resources. There is something... Yeah, the, the sex ratio thing, it feels like there's a missing part of the study to really make that 100%. Because part of me wonders whether large females are harder to find in urban areas or something along those lines some sort of detection change as well because let's say you're right they are they are persecuted in urban areas and they are more vulnerable to sort of accidental deaths instead of driving that reduction in size it reduces a push towards more cryptic behaviors And the ones you're capturing by whatever sampling method they picked are being picked up one-to-one, no problem. Do we know what sampling, uh, how they sampled? No, it just says subadult to adult snakes were captured throughout the active season in each population in parallel. Yeah, so it does, I mean, it's probably not a big enough deal to to change these results because they're pretty pretty stuck, but... um, but that's that's the that's the only thing that makes me a little bit a bit curious is whether this sort of stuff is absorbed by something else that isn't size. Mm. Seem pretty unlikely because I mean surely they would have scooped up some larger females at some point if that was the case. Yeah, I mean they don't really go into much detail about the sites at all, do they? There's no maps, there's no pictures of the sites, so it's difficult. They don't even say whether or not they're just walking around scooping them up or whether they're using refugia. So we really don't know very much at all about how this data yeah. is collected. Which... Well, that's my concern. And you think, okay, I'll jump in and just see the data because you should yeah. be able to see some raw counts because you would like to know what. Okay, so what was the largest female found in an urban site? And I'm not seeing it, I've, I've got means and standard deviations um and actually no this, this i suppose this is quite interesting because um what do we have so in urban areas we've got a mean of like 51 and then 47 for their females then the non-urban and suburban areas we've got a mean of 63 and 66 svl like, uh yes yeah. yes SVLs snapped event length so it's it's pretty you know that's a pretty big difference um there is more variation in the suburban ones they have a larger standard deviation in the in the you know the the SVL lengths but that makes sense because you're working with larger animals so you're going to get more variation because they can vary more because they're getting to a bigger size it's not like they're uh leveling off at a, a smaller size at a, potentially a younger age mm. yeah but yeah pretty pretty wild really to think that it's having that dramatic an impact on a on a population or a few populations yeah it's quite it's quite it's really quite surprising actually um, it is yeah it would be interesting to do a um what do you call it common garden experiment and just see like What's caused this? Is it just a case, like, if you were to take baby snakes from those suburban and non-urban populations, do they have 
sorry, from the urban populations, do they have the capacity to grow to the same size as the yeah. suburban and non-urban populations if you feed them? Is it a plastic thing? Is it yeah. a genetic thing? I would be surprised yeah. if it was a genetic thing. But, you know, we've found so many cases where it's like, oh, my God, these animals have evolved in 40 years. Evolution doesn't take millennia. So who knows? Like, mm -hmm. yeah. But I think a common garden experiment on these populations in particular would be really cool just to see, like, okay, if you give these urban populations as their babies, just whack loads and loads of froglets in there. Do they get massive? Or yeah. have they lost the ability to get massive? Yeah, it would be cool. But yeah. The other thing is, what if it's not a resource thing? But we, I mean, we were talking about the sublethal costs yeah, of being could be in an urban environment. Could be a pollution thing. Could be, I mean, more what I was talking about with behavioral thing. Maybe they have to hide more. Maybe they don't have that opportunity to forage in the same way as much. Okay, there's more resources, but can you actually get to them? All sorts of things. It, yeah. It's a, there's a lot of complexity when you start digging into the reasons, but holy smokes, it's a very interesting. Yeah, starting for sure. point this current bio and i wonder it would be paper presents. yeah it would be really cool to do some like fish trapping and you know amphibian surveys in these different ponds because you know i'm sure that there's been a change in those due to the urban or non-urban nature not definitely yeah. but, but probably yeah. you know like these urban ponds it wouldn't surprise me if there's like some kind of invasive fish in there that's just eating all the frogs or something like it's totally possible yeah but yeah, it like you say, be, could be. very curious paper and uh, a very definite, a very definite, yeah, without a doubt, we can say that suburban and non-urban snake females, well, no, not without a doubt, actually, without a doubt, the ones they've caught, they're bigger. You're right. It could be a case of detection. Maybe the snakes, which are larger, have learned to be wily because they know people love smashing them. It's a possibility. See, now, I think if their data was done systematically, you could factor in that detection scenario with the idea that i suppose detection was changed based on svo or something there's probably a way you can get around that it might be a bit tricky because it's also the target of what you're looking at in terms of comparing but maybe if their stuff is standardized we don't know how they sampled so it's a little bit tricky but maybe hmm. but yeah i mean that is another paper about urban snakes and a way in which they are apparently different to suburban and non-urban snakes mm -hmm. i think that's about it for our to be honest it was one of those ones wasn't it like i liked this i really would like to do more stuff on urban reptiles um yeah we should definitely keep an eye out and try and follow this up yeah no these were two really interesting papers um even if it sounds like i've been critical of both of them it's not because <laughs> it's not sort of oh they're not not solid papers they're really solid papers really interesting results it's more just like I've got so many more questions because it's such yeah. an intriguing topic. Yeah. And there are so many little little interplays there that you just you're just dying to know more about. Yeah, yeah. Should we move on to our species of the bye week? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so species of the bye week for episode 90 is entitled Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Cruciform Eye reveals new species of direct developing frog in the Amazonian Andes. And this is by Chavez, Garcia Ayachi, and Katanazi in 2021. So a brand new species for this year, published in Evolutionary Systematics. So we're traveling from the urban ponds of Krakow to the lush eastern slopes of the Andes in central Peru. And we're talking about a genus of frogs called Pristimantis. 
And this is a genus which has undergone what I think can justifiably be termed as an explosion in discovery. Seven new species have been described in the last 10 years alone, all from the eastern Eastern Andes of central Peru. And this species is coming from El Sierra Communal Reserve. Remember that because that will come up later. El Sierra Communal Reserve. And it's located on the eastern slopes of the Andes in central Peru. And it protects a staggering 616,413 hectares of primary forest. And during fieldwork in El Sierra Communal Reserve, that's El Sierra Communal Reserve, from 2013 to 2014, they collected a series of unidentified Pristamantis frogs. And of course being biologists, herpetologists, geneticists. This led to some genetic and morphological analysis. And following that, it was revealed that these specimens belong to an unnamed species of Pristamantis, which they have decided to name, and they've called it Pristamantis cera. Cera being a noun in a position, referencing El Cera Communal Reserve, the protected area established in 2001, which contains the type locality of the new species and is probably the reason we don't necessarily have to worry about it right away. Hey, that's a nice change yes. for these. <laughs> yeah. It's just as well, because they're tiny. They're only two centimetres long. Mate, it's pretty much a nematode worm. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Imagine how tiny the nematode worms in these guys are. Minuscule, mate. Yeah. Minuscule. Um, yeah fraction of the size uh what does this little tiny tiny little customer look like oh it's hideous <laughs> it's anything but hideous <laughs> really variable actually wouldn't you agree like looking at um figure three all the different colorations that you get between females males and the juvenile as well there um yeah the juvenile it's... has like a stripey back a little stripe on the back which is lacking in the adults but yeah it's... racing stripe very yeah. stylish they're sort of mottled, mottled brown and green with like bright orange highlights. The eyes are very well camouflaged in this species. What does it mean when it says the cruciform eye? No idea. Oh, cruciform. Oh, it's like crucifix. It means they've got a cross through the eye, I think. They do? Oh, yes, I see it. If you look at uh, figure three E... The adult female. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you have a dark line running top to bottom through the eye. Yes. No, you do see it in the males, too. No, I see it. I see it. Yep. I'm just pressing my enhance button. Oh, yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. Wow, you can really zoom in on these pictures. Blimey. (laughs) How many megapixels was this? Enough. enough. Enough to see a cruciform eye. Enough. Yeah, true that. So yeah, you got a badass little frog. Very, very, very small. And a lovely speckly white belly. Yeah, almost sort of, um, it looks almost astral. The astral plane yes. on the belly there. Mm-hmm. And uh, what do we know about their habitat? I mean, it just looks so beautiful. It just looks like the exact kind of place you'd want to be. Um, Lush, montane forests. Mm, perfect. Mm. They were generally found on leaves um, between one and two meters from the ground. In the afternoons and evenings, between 1,500 and 2,200 meters above sea level. So somewhat montane. So it's a montane forest. Um, lots of vegetation, as you'd expect. Bushes, trees, ferns. Loads of climbing vines, lianas, epiphytes, ferns, mushrooms, lichens, 
all of this stuff, all the trappings of a banging forest, essentially. And they were found predominantly at night, actually, it says here, um, at the end of the rainy season. They didn't hear any males calling, so there's no call included in this paper. Not yet. Well, not yet, but watch this space. Maybe it doesn't make a sound. Maybe it's a quiet customer, but it seems as though they probably would make a sound of some description, being as they mm-hmm. are frogs, and yeah. frogs love shouting generally. But yeah, a nice new species endemic to Peru. And uh, yeah, another exciting addition to the genus Pristimantis. Anyone who's following this genus, what a genus to follow. I mean, if you're going to support... What a genus. <laughs> if you're going to support a genus, support this one, mate. Those coming out. Uh, so yeah. Okay, any other business? Uh, nope, not yet. There, nope. there are some things almost there, but but not quite. okay cool um i've got one other piece of business we had a question from hedrigal and the question was with the paper on blue tongues reflecting uv light what do you think that could mean for the ecology of indonesian species of blue tongues who don't really have much of a blue tongue so this question's in reference to a paper we discussed a little while ago on the podcast where we were looking at blue tongue skinks and why their tongues are blue. The paper's actually... Oh, it was the, the shock tactic, yeah, for the birds, right? The bird would come close, bam, tongue. Ah! Yeah. Yeah, gets spooked by the uh, the sudden display of these blue tongue skinks. That's it. And it was actually yeah. a display not just for birds, but also for other skinks as well, because the skinks are not very nice to each other and it's quite good to just be able to flash oh, your tongue and rude. be like... Oi! I love you. That's pretty much what they're saying <laughs> with that tongue when they poke it at the other lizards. And so I went back to the Abram Jan et al. 2015 paper entitled Why is the Tongue of Blue Tongue Skinks Blue? And tried to answer this question about what it might, what the reason might be that some of these animals have pink tongues and not blue tongues. And so actually there was quite a lot of information regarding this. So in the paper they talk about skinks which get blue tongues. The shift from unpigmented to pigmented blue tongues leads to higher conspicuousness. So blue is very contrasting when looked at through the visual model of other skinks. So blue is very obvious to other skinks. It actually was more contrasting in the eyes of other skinks than it was of birds, right? So the blue is very, very obvious Mm. to other skinks. However, both pink and blue are very obvious signals that do stand out in most backgrounds. So the skinks that don't have blue tongues tend to have kind of pinky tongues. And there is even a a species called the pink-tongued skink, although it isn't from Indonesia, as the question suggests. It's from Australia. However, because the pink and the blue are those very obvious signals which stand out, but blue is very obvious to skinks, it's kind of fair to assume that the blue tongue is actually not only uh, a signal to predators, but also a signal to other skinks to just be like, hey, don't come near me because I will wreck you. And they do sometimes fight to the death, these skinks. So... The blue is likely adjusted to the sight of skinks, which means if you've got a tongue which is pink and you're a skink, it's quite likely that rather than displaying to other skinks, they're using it predominantly to display to predators. And if it's not blue, this would suggest that they're displaying to predators which maybe don't have the ability to see the uh, necessary UV wavelengths, which makes the blue so punchy. So they can just rely on a pink tongue, which is perhaps a little bit less of a costly thing to develop, possibly. Um, 
So you can kind of assume that if a skink has got a more pinky tongue than a blue tongue, it's likely to be adjusted to deter predators. And some avian predators actually can't see UV. A notable example of this is raptors. So those big birds of prey, they actually can't really see UV. So if this skink's warning is particularly directed at avian predators, which are raptors, then having a blue tongue would be of no benefit compared to a pink tongue. So that's a possibility. But yeah, the long and short of it is, there's not really a definite answer to this that I can find right now, but the likelihood is that the pink tongues are simply adapted to a suite of predators which don't have the UV vision and therefore they don't need to be blue. Hmm. Um, where's this raptors can't see UV thing? It was in the um, Abramjan et al. paper. Okay, because there are definitely raptors that can, because there's this whole deal where some raptors can follow uh, like rodent urine trails which which catch that that slightly fluoresce uv oh wow um and it will they'll follow those to the to the rodent and get well in the paper it said raptors for example this is a quote raptors for example generally do not see in the uv spectrum so they kind of gave themselves a little wiggle room there and i mean i'm not i mean i okay. don't i haven't read i haven't read reams or anything really about raptor visual models so that could be completely spurious <laughs> no no neither have i it's just i i know that little um analogy or, or example of of them making use of uv I, I i can't speak to how widespread it is but i know it's a mm. i guess case. as with all things there's no hard and fast rule yeah surprise surprise <laughs> yeah but to be honest with you hedrigal i think um yeah the jury's kind of out on that one um it would be really cool to see a paper specifically targeting pink tongues i think in this paper they actually used the pink mouth as an analog for a pink tongue so i don't think that pink tongue skinks have actually been investigated specifically in this way so it would be really nice to see a paper targeting them and it does make a lot of sense that a change in community composition would drive something like that especially something that is about Essentially, communication should be quite sensitive to what are, what's around and the perceptions of, of what's around for it to be effective. Mm, yeah. Yeah. But that's the only other business I've got, Ben. Awesome. Yeah. So I think we can say if you want to get in touch with us, you can. Herphighlights at gmail.com. We are on social medias at Herphighlights. And if you would like to ask a question like Hedrigal has, you can become a Patreon. Don't forget, we've got new t-shirts in the store of spider-tailed vipers and <laughs> some really cool Ouroboros. If you want to check that out, it's Patreon. Excuse me, it's Redbubble. It's redbubble.com slash highlights. And I think all that remains to be said after that is thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>